Hello, Kate Jones here, and this is the Love to Teach podcast. I am a history teacher, a middle leader, author, blogger, and now I am entering into the world of educational podcasts. Hello, I am very excited to be relaunching the Love to Teach podcast. Now, this episode is very different to the previous 10 episodes, which are available and you can listen back to. The previous episodes were short, about 20 minute episodes, and it was just me talking about retrieval practice, teaching and learning, or CPD. Whereas today, this episode is longer, but I'm not on my own. I am joined by Professor Alan Badley. And if you're interested in cognitive psychology and memory, you may be familiar with who Professor Alan Badley is, best known for his work with Badley and Hitch and working memory. Wow, what a great opportunity for me to talk to Professor Alan Badley. And I hope you enjoy listening to my interview with him as much as I did. Really interested in cognitive psychology. And in this field, you are a legend <laughs> and your work is, is just incredibly well known. Uh, so I'm going to start off with a, a little summary of your career, but feel free um, to fill in the gaps or elaborate on anything. But um, basically, you've been doing work on human memory and the application of cognitive psychology for decades. Um, you achieved your PhD from Cambridge University. You went on to work at various universities, most recently the University of York. You've won various awards and had recognitions. You're a published author um, and you are very well known for your work with Dr. Graham Hitch um, with the model of working memory that was published in the 1970s. And, and we're going to talk about that today. Uh, is there anything I've missed out that you'd like to add in terms of your wonderful career? <laughs> no, that's fine, thanks. <laughs> okay, well, that's great. Well, I wanted to go back even further before you work with, uh, you know, the legendary Badley and Hitch working memory model, and that's with Atkinson and Schifrin and the well-known multi-store model of memory. And um, is it fair to say that you um, noticed some issues with the short-term memory model and that it was perhaps, should we say, quite simplistic? And that's where your work with working memory began to evolve. Yes. Um, I was working on short-term memory, the idea that you have a verbal system that holds information briefly, which was rather like the short-term store in the Atkinson and Schifrin model, um, but also interested in neuropsychology. And their model assumed that their short-term store um, did a lot of important things like feeding long-term memory, holding plans, controlling behavior. And yet these patients emerged who had very poor short-term memory. If you gave them a string of digits, 
once it got beyond two, uh, then they'd forget. But they had normal long-term memory and were able to live a normal life. So that was a paradox. And Graham Hitch and I had just got our first grant to work together uh, at a time when um, people were starting to leave short-term memory because it was becoming rather complicated and were focusing on other questions. And so the field was becoming relatively empty, which was useful in a way because uh, didn't have too much literature to read. Uh, and eventually we, we started by asking the question, we don't have access to these rare patients. Can we make our, our, our student participants memory patients? And we did this not by removing chunks of their brain, but by keeping it occupied. So we gave them strings of numbers, like a telephone number, at the same time as they were doing other tasks that were supposed to be dependent on this complex working memory system. Um, what we found was that the longer the sequence of numbers, um, the poorer their performance, which is what we predicted. But the effect wasn't very large. Uh, and they could clearly do lots of things despite having a string of numbers like an eight digit telephone number. <clears throat> and so that pushed us to think, well, it must be more complicated than this. How much, or how little can we get away with making it just a bit more complicated? We already knew from work that was going on that there was something like a visual equivalent. And clearly we needed some sort of attentional system to control it. And we call this the central executive, which is basically what runs the whole show. Uh, and in this initial model, it was helped by one system that holds verbal information, often by just saying it to yourself, and another that uses visuospatial information, if you like, by forming and holding images. And these two are held together and coordinated by the central executive, which has a limited attentional capacity. And that's still the heart of the system uh, over 40 years later, although it's become considerably more complicated. Yeah, well, that was uh, one of the questions that was sent in, was that um, your work, as we said, was published in the 70s. And um, we'll talk uh, about the components, but actually, even now, talking much later, um, it's still very relevant and helpful, isn't it? Um, in terms of the components, we'll get to the episodic buffer. That was added later. Actually, but, no, this won't show on, but this has just come out on working memory state of the science. Oh, I'll tweet the link to that, yeah. And it's basically everybody who's got a theory in the business as in, invited to take part. Uh, and there are, what? A dozen different models in there. Wow. <laughs> but many of them are very similar to ours. Yeah. And ours is uh, probably the most general. So what we've aimed to do is to keep it simple in outline. If you think of theories as like maps, it's a map that has the sort of continents on 
and allows for the mapping of the individual countries and the districts within the country. Whereas many of the models focus on one aspect of it. So what we aim to do is to allow it to expand and link together these potentially disconnected areas. Yeah, well, I found your theory because obviously I'm I'm I don't have a PhD from Cambridge <laughs> in psychology, but I've still found it you know very helpful, uh, and I've been able to understand it, and and it's helped with my teaching. Um, and you've mentioned about the central executive, and I read somewhere um, about somebody referring to it like a spam filter. How there's so many things perhaps happening around us that. The central, I mean, I'm not sure whether you agree with this, but that the central executive then can pick a, a select few to, to focus on because there's, there's so much happening, isn't there? And if we think about a classroom. Right. Yeah. Yes, and, it, it does. It, it organizes, focuses on what's important and manipulates it. Yeah, and that's really important because a classroom can be filled with we've got classroom displays, we have lots of other students around, we have the teacher, we might have something outside, any teacher knows when there's a, a wasp or a bee and how that can just pull the attention away. <laughs> and, and this is really important. So we have the central executive. Um, and then I just wanted to ask about some of the other components in a bit more um, detail with the working memory. So then uh, the phonological loop, and this refers to sound and, and audio yes um, this is the system that you're using if you simply remember and repeat back a telephone number and it has as part of its equipment the capacity to rehearse verbally to say something to yourself and to keep things going provided it's not too long mm -hmm. so if it's a five figure telephone number 793 whatever, ever. Uh, you can keep saying it uh, at, until the cows come home. Once it gets beyond, um, let's say, six, seven, eight, nine, by the time you've said the last one, the first one is starting to disappear. Yeah. So that's what sets the limit. Now, the same system accepts information from a number of sources. So our original model was a very simple one. We just assumed that, it, that you heard something, it set up a trace that faded away gradually, but that could be reactivated by saying it. And, and that works quite well. Um, there's still controversy about whether the activation is a fading trace or something more complicated. Uh, we showed an effect called the word length effect back in 1975, which was that if you're trying to remember a string of unrelated words, the longer they are, the fewer you can remember. So if it's five one-syllable words, you're okay. Five five-syllable words, forget it, or you will forget it. Um, and that phenomenon is, is very strong. And it has interesting implications. Um, common measure of the phonological loop is what's called digit span, how many 
numbers, you can remember how long a telephone number. And that varies across languages because the duration, the spoken duration of a number varies. So in English, it's virtually one syllable, one, two, three, four, apart from seven. In Hebrew and Arabic, it's more like two. Wow. And the span for English is higher than that for Hebrew and Arabic. Chinese is even bigger, but I think that's probably because you could package more digits together into a single syllable than in English. But this, this is all still somewhat controversial as I've discovered from having a, one of my, my papers potentially rejected because they don't agree with this. So, so that's a, a sore spot at the moment. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> 45 years ago. Uh, it, it's a clear effect, but people don't necessarily accept the explanation. Anyway, that's enough about divergence. No, well, I've um, I always try and make links with real life and about memory, and I I can think of times where I've been repeating something over and over, and then I've found a pen and paper and I've wrote it down, you know, and, and that idea of saying it out loud is almost like holding it in the memory until you can. That's right put it on the paper and then you can just obviously then relax and you don't need to keep repeating it and um and my students um I, I've had this conversation with teachers as well I tell them regularly students will put their hands up in class and they might be waiting patiently and then by the time I get to that student and they say oh I forgot what I was going to say and then they say that they feel stupid and it's just popped out of their head and then that's when I seize the opportunity to talk about working memory isn't it and that's that's right and, <laughs> and it correlates with school performance um maybe we should talk a bit more about it before i come on to that but the, there is work on correlating working memory performance with academic performance and how it affects different subjects oh wow we need to talk about the model first Yes, well, I've got, yeah, I've got some questions from listeners linked to that. So that sounds fantastic. So we've talked about the central executive, the phonological loop, um, and then we have this visual spatial sketch pad. That's right. Well, we knew there was a, a visual system that seemed to be separate, and there's already neuropsychological evidence of it being separate. Um, but we focused, first of all, on the phonological loop because more work had been done on it and we thought it would be simpler. And, and I think it is the simplest of the systems. The visuospatial system is a, a system for holding visual and spatial information, holding visual images, if you like, in mind. And whereas the phonological loop is linked to language, and is good at storing sequences of information. The sketchpad is better at holding patterns of information. And um, one of the earliest studies I did um, came from a, an experience when I was on sabbatical in California. I got interested in American football and was listening while driving down the freeway on 
big college game between UCLA and Stanford. And I suddenly noticed that I, was, I had this very clear image of the field, um, which is very important because you have to make a standard number of yards. And I noticed my car was weaving from lane to lane. So I switched to music and survived. But when I got back, um, I decided I'd, I'd look into this. And so we created a memory test that involved holding images. And then um, we didn't have a driving simulator, but we had a very simple piece of equipment whereby a spot of light goes round and round and round. And you try to keep a stylus in contact with it. And it clocks up how much time you're on target. And you can make it more or less difficult by speeding it up. And we showed that this interfered with the visual imaging uh, aspect of working memory, um, but not with the verbal part. And then subsequently, my then postdoc, now uh, distinguished professor in Edinburgh, um, Robert Logie, um, I argued that this was a spatial system, not a visual system. And I'd shown that the particular task we used was disrupted by a spatial activity, uh, even though it wasn't visual, which involved keeping pointing to a moving auditory sound source. Whereas visual activity, looking and judging the brightness of the light, didn't. So I said, this is clearly spatial, not visual. Bob later demonstrated that there were two components. One was visual and the aspects of, for example, tying two images together, like, I don't know, an, an elephant and an ice hockey stick, um, involves a more pattern-based system. And that can be interfered with by looking at objects or even colors, um, or even in some cases, fluctuation, noise patterns. And so we started to pull apart that system. Uh, and indeed, um, both systems are now starting to be pulled apart. And if that's a good point to stop. Uh, no, no, so I'm just listening. Like, this is really, really, I mean, I've read about this before, but to hear you talking about it, is, is, is fascinating. And I just keep thinking about applying it in the classroom. Um, and then in terms of your model of the working memory, it was later, is that correct, that the episodic buffer was added as a, is it perhaps about the interaction between working memory, yes. long-term memory? That, right? That's right. Um, all seemed to be going quite well initially after 10, ten years, I started to, was invited to write a, an overview of the work. And I got to the end of the book almost and realized I'd not written anything about the central executive. We put it aside because it was very complicated and because there weren't uh, appropriate theories of attention. Yeah. There were, it was a very active area, but it was all concerned with perceptual control we were interested in control of action, but there did actually appear one theory that was concerned with control of action. Um, as a collaboration between two people, Tim Chalice, who was interested in the frontal lobes and attention, and Donald Norman, 
who was interested in slips of action. For example, making a mistake by um, when you drive uh, to the supermarket on a Saturday morning, mistakenly going on your normal route and ending up at work. So how do you control this? They came up with a simple overview, which is that behavior action is controlled in two ways. One is by a whole series of habits that are pretty well automated. Uh, and these are what allow you, for example, to, to drive to work, um, to stop appropriately, to avoid crashing, to avoid getting lost. But having arrived there, uh, having no memory of it because you've been thinking about what you're planning for lunch next day. Uh, the other system kicks in if there were a holdup. Uh, let's say there'd been a traffic accident and you had to find another route. And this is called the supervisory attentional system. And that kicks in and controls the habits, uh, uses attention to select ways of ways ahead and so forth. And so we adopted the supervisory attentional system as our controller. Now that seemed to be working reasonably well. Work was becoming um, more and more focused towards working memory elsewhere. And in particular, a, a couple of people in the US were interested in working memory and language comprehension. Um, and they invented a very simple test of working memory. Um, which they called working memory span. Now this argued that what the essence of working memory is holding information and manipulating it at the same time. Um, and they developed a very simple task. They had people read out sentences and then after reading them out, recall the last word of each sentence. So it could be the sailor came home from sea. Um, he had had a rough time. And then you'd have to recall sea and, and time. Um, and people can manage this for about three or maybe four and not much more. And what they found was that this correlated very highly with um, comprehension tests from the graduate record examination in the US, which test that you have to take if you want to go on to graduate school. So quite complex prose. Other people replicated that and also showed that it correlated with lots of other things, including intelligence uh, and with attentional things like being able to focus on a visual target and not be distracted when something else comes on. So this seemed like the core of um, the, the central system. And there was a, a lot of interest in, could we use this to find what the focus of intelligence is? Uh, just the, the answer is, it's not very clear. Uh, I'm happy to talk about this later. Uh, it created a problem for us because we had a, a visual system that had very limited capacity a verbal system that could maybe remember one sentence, an attentional control system that didn't have a memory. So how were people 
holding and manipulating three or four sentences. And there were other problems that had cropped up with the system. How do the verbal and the visual system work together? And we were able to show that um, the same task could have visual and verbal components that were interleaved. Um, and we decided, having resisted making the model more complex for 20 odd years, we decided maybe it was time to add a fourth component. And this was the episodic buffer. It's essentially an additional system that pulls together the information from the other three and makes it available to conscious awareness. So if you like, this is like um, a theory of conscious awareness tied into a theory of control. And it's not an entirely original theory. Um, a chap called Bernard Barnes had talked about uh, consciousness as being like a stage in which actors perform. Um, when I published this, I, I thought people might not take it seriously, um, but I found that it, it proved very popular. And I think it's partly because it allowed our European concept of working memory and the North American one to fit together in a constructive way. I mean, we had interacted and um, worked together, but the, our models were rather different. And so it was useful to have this. Yeah. Um, we were worried, however, that it might be the case that people would just use this as a, a convenient way of explaining away any unfortunate data that didn't fit, blame it on the episodic buffer. Uh, and so we felt in order to move on, we've got to use it in order to expand the project. And so we started off by saying, okay, all this um, is, let me, let, let me take one step back. Um, visual working memory had suddenly caught on with, um, or gradually caught on with people who were originally concerned with visual attention. Um, and the areas were starting to come together. The classical issue in visual attention is how aspects of a feature, such as its shape and its color, are brought together. Because in the visual system, shape and color come through different channels. And this process is called binding. And so we argued that perhaps the sketchpad performs the task of binding, helped by the central executive. Similarly, in understanding language, you need to bind together words into longer, larger units. So um, in the future becomes a, a unit. And so a, a sentence um, where you can only remember five unrelated words, you can probably man manage 15 if they're part of a meaningful sentence. Mm -hmm. So binding occurs both in vision and in language. So we said, okay, let's see if, if the episodic buffer is indeed responsible for binding. And we did that by systematically blocking the various components. 
what we expected was that once you block the central executive, binding would fall apart. It didn't. Uh, it, locking the central executive impaired performance, right. but it didn't impair binding any more than anything else. So that forced us to say, okay, binding is not in working memory. Working memory is, if you like, the stage on which it acted out, the screen on which it's protected, projected. But working memory is limited in capacity. So the more the system can do off screen, the more you can cram onto the screen. And this is the situation we are at the moment. Oh, well, that's that was really interesting. There's just um, there's a few things from that I wanted to pick up on. So um, you mentioned about things being automatic. So I think this can be really helpful for teachers when we design tasks yes. that students, if they repeat the task, but with different content, then that element becomes automatic, like the type of quiz or an activity. So then that essentially frees up the space in working memory. Um, that idea, like you said, about being autopilot. So that's another reason why that's very useful for teachers. Um, and then you've talked about obviously capacity, the working memory span. Um, and I think it was Miller in the 50s who said magic number seven, give or take two in terms of how many items we can hold. Right. And um, teachers have often asked me to elaborate on that. Um, okay. Does that still stand or in terms of it says give or take two so does that basically mean then we all have limited working memory capacity but some slightly more capacity stronger than others okay um i'll take them in turn sorry that's probably overloaded the working, my, my, memory. My working memory capacity <laughs> is oh. overloaded. I mean, the first one is it is um based on automaticity yes and that's very useful in a number of ways um, in education a very simple thing is, is that in reading you want the process to become automatic in arithmetic yes um, number facts being automatic is useful um, it doesn't mean to say that's all there is so the important thing is to know where becoming automatic is useful and where it isn't. Right. Uh, and that can be misleading because uh, it can lead you to think that um, if you learn a fact um, by rote so that it becomes automatic, um, Paris is the capital of France, then you know about Paris. Um, it's useful to know that in order to understand when people are talking about it, but it's a question of blending automaticity with flexibility. Yeah. And sometimes trying to do them at the same time may overload you. So um, do you try and have lots of examples or do you have one or two examples that you become familiar with but then gradually build up so that you build in the flexibility. Right. Whereas if you start off with too many examples, uh, you may miss the pattern. 
So yes, it is very important. And it's important to know when and where it's appropriate. Now, the magic number seven. Yes. Minus two. Yeah. Um, a very important paper, which people tend to misremember as that he said, memory span is seven digits. And um, it's that's not in fact the important thing that he said. Um, he said two things really. One is that attention has a limited capacity and this applies for perception, uh, for making judgments across different colors. Um, the amount you can hold is limited and using information theory, it was a limited number of bits of information. Um, however, he also pointed out that you can pack more information into what he called a single chunk. Right, yeah. So I can remember uh, a 15 word sentence, what I used to be able to, uh, because um, I can fit it into chunks. Yeah. Um, and um, similarly with telephone numbers, or with um, mnemonics. Yeah. So colors of the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, and the, the two mnemonics that use different chunking methods. One is you just remember Roigbilf, Roigbiv, and you can practice that lots yeah. and lots of times. Or you can have Richard of your gains battles in vain, which is a bit more interesting <laughs> and a bit more meaningful. Uh, and so there are also sorts of mnemonics that depend on chunking yeah. and on the chunkability of the material you're trying to remember. Yeah, well, is that a way of, I've, I've, I've heard chunking talked a lot in education and I'm a history teacher, so we can categorize things um, into chunks and we've used acronyms and I've heard it described as either supporting working memory or cheating it <laughs> by chunking things together. You're essentially tricking it to, to hold more information. No, you're feeding it. Ah, <laughs> that's a good way. If you give me richer food, I might get a bit fatter, but unfortunately working memory doesn't, doesn't grow. Yeah, well, that's something I get asked a lot. People yeah. think, um, yes. how can you increase working memory? And, and the advice that I give based on your work is, well, we can, uh, maybe I should say feed it now, but we, could, we can support it and do things like the chunking, the mnemonics, the acronyms, things like that, but yeah. not necessarily no. increase, yeah. can we? There's a, been a lot of work on this in recent years because of some work that originally suggested that you can expand uh, working memory by using exercises that are carefully increased in difficulty and it initially seemed very positive. Mm. Um, but later studies have been much less encouraging. What does seem to be the case is that you can train people and they will do better on broadly similar tasks, but they won't on the whole generalize to measures of intelligence or how well you do um, in an academic subject. Um, at the moment, the interest is in to what extent 
can the different components of working memory perhaps be trained and fitted to the different demands of different subjects. And I think that's possible, but there are many, many um, systems out on the market that claim to improve your working memory for a not very modest fee. Yeah. Uh, and they tend not to be well supported. So yeah. I think they're not a, a good investment of your school's money. Yeah, a few years ago, they were sort of, they were fads and there was these games and brain gyms and things like that, you know, that would, and yeah, as you said, didn't, didn't turn yeah. up well, so. <laughs> Having said that, I think you possibly can train attention. Right. Um, and train to focus attention so that you exclude it, disruptive material. And that may well be worth doing. And that may be at the heart of what the claims are for improving working memory and why it does extend to other tasks that are similar. So I certainly wouldn't want to rule out the possibility of attentional training. Right. Well, that's interesting. Um, and something that you said to me before was years ago, when you were working on human memory, you wanted to bring that to education you wanted to share it with teachers and, yeah, and yes. discussed. And actually I had the same conversation with Professor Robert Bjork. It's, it's like you said, it's been a slow process. Um, right. And there's been that gap. Um, and as I said, we're, we're getting there now. Teachers are um, learning more about memory. Um, and, and you mentioned this before about in terms of academic performance and working memory. What is it, do you think, that um, teachers should know or be aware of? Um, well, the person who's done most on this um, is uh, Susan Gathercole. And she uh, and I held a grant about 20 years ago now in Bristol. And she looked at the educational application and she took the working memory model. Susan Gathercole, um, opted to see if the working memory model could be used and linked to educational performance in schools. Mm -hmm. And she developed a, a battery of ways of measuring aspects of working memory and um, developed and validated them across a large sample uh, and then applied them and related them to uh, academic performance at various levels and stages. Um, and um, at the school level, what she found was that um, there was uh, overall working memory capacity, lumping everything together, did correlate with educational achievement, right. but that the individual components differed. So the phonological loop correlates with the early stages of reading. And some work that she and I did showed that um, if you have a, a poor phonological loop, can only hold sort of three or four digits, or then you have early difficulty in acquiring vocabulary right. because you need to hold a sequence of sound signs correctly in order to map it onto what you're learning about. Yeah. And that gradually, as uh, people grow up, this becomes less central to vocabulary, but it continues to be a problem if you are 
severely dyslexic, if you have a severely impaired phonological loop, you're still likely to have more problems in reading rapidly, in learning to spell, and certain other potential organizational aspects of behavior. But you can be highly intelligent and highly productive. Um, the most difficult to cope with is if you have a poor central executive right. of difficulty in combining storage and processing. And if you have that combined with a phonological loop deficit, then that's much more serious. Um, I mean, these things are, are all relative. We've all got strengths in different areas and others, but for teaching, it's probably important to understand what the limitations are. And something that was important that Sue Gatherco and her colleagues did was to sit in on classes where children with poor working memory were being taught and observe. And what she found was that they had trouble following instructions. So often it would something apparently similar simple like put your pens down take your workbooks put them in the corner and bring the arithmetic sums over here or something like that and um, some children would lose it by the time they put their pens down uh, and but they were often described by the teacher not as not as troublesome but dreamy and lacking in concentration um, other children who might have good phonological loop capacity, um, but less good executive capacity might show other patterns. Um, and um, she and her colleague have produced a book for teachers on identifying such children and um, how, how to better deal with the situation. She's now gone on to, uh, uh, well, she became director of the unit I directed many years before and set up a, a, a research program that takes in children who are um, sent because they appear to have um, learning difficulties. Um, and what they've done is to look at their working memory and related capacities and related to the um, diagnosis and has found that on the whole the diagnosis is often not terribly helpful because um, some of the di diagnostics involve a combination of features where one might be okay and one not. So if you consider um, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, children who tend to be reported are those uh, who have behavioural problems. Um, and one theory is that this, this is perhaps not a single dimension, but if you have attention deficit and hyperactivity and you put them together, then it's problematic. Um, if you just have hyperactivity, and you've got good attentional control, 
um, then you come across as lively and too perhaps fidgety. Um, remember being called fishy at school because I wriggled a lot. And um, it's when you combine this with poor attentional control um, that frustration creeps in. Now that's just a theory at the moment. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's unique to me. But it's, it's an example of how perhaps understanding a little bit better will help education. But research in education isn't easy, as I'm sure you all know, because in a sense, when you do experiments on children, you're, you, know, you, you can't take too many chances. Mm. You need to be very careful. And mm. children are very busy and teachers are very busy. But it is very important. And gradually, I think it's being re recognised and realised. And meantime, um, we try to feed in what ideas we have. Yeah, absolutely. When I spoke to Professor Henry Wundiger, um, he mentioned about all the variables in a classroom, in a school environment, and, and also obviously there's ethical factors, doing something like retrieval practice with one class, not another, and then another class might benefit, and then another class haven't had the effective strategies. So yes, there is that... Um, those challenges isn't it um and that's where it's all that's right. and teachers perhaps can be a little bit reluctant to engage with research from a laboratory because they say that's very different to my context but it is about taking what we can to help us inform our practice isn't it really also teachers are overloaded yeah that's one thing that sue and i did i, I got involved in a project on um, whether parasitic worms impair performance and if you treat them does their cognition improve and one of the things that was required was uh, a measure of reading to be applied in Tanzania in the local language of Kiswahili. Now the people responsible for the educational measures simply translated an American test and it didn't work for reading right. because it was a reading test based on the irregularity of English spelling to sound. Um, but we came up with an alternative which was to present words and non-words and just ask the child is this a real word or not and you can do an earlier step by saying is this um, a correct letter or just a, a thing that looks like a letter and you can get later stages by having them read simple sentences and decide whether they're true or false um, and this worked really well we then persuaded someone uh, a UK publisher because there was nothing to compare it with um, and there are lots of reading tests as I'm sure teachers here know um, and we came up with this reading test um, that was published, it was trialled um, with teachers, teachers liked it, um, but it didn't sell because they were absolutely fed up with tests. The fact that this was a test that you could give the whole class, that it was fun to do, you could do it in 10 minutes, <laughs> even so, no more tests then. 
Now, in fact, I, it, one advantage of it is that it can be run in any language because it doesn't rely on the irregularity of English words. And so I've been working with colleagues in Brazil and I'm hoping to introduce it over there. So it's, it's being published and, and we'll see because Portuguese is a regular language and you can't use the um, irregularity of the language as a measure. So it's a long and hard road, but uh, it's fun. Yeah, well, you said you were retired and it doesn't sound like you are. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm busier than ever. Yeah, you are very busy, um, which is great because obviously you'll be publishing more work. Um, and touched upon this before. So is there now research looking at working memory, as you said, across different subjects? Sort of the nuances, as you've said, like with maths and English and and so on, or is that still in its infancy? Um, there is work. Um, it, it's in its infancy in the sense that if you consider maths, then what's important for um, learning the tables is different from um, probably addition and division, which is different from geometry and so forth. Um, on the whole, it looks as though the visuospatial sketchpad is, is more related to maths, although there are aspects of maths that are more related to the phonological loop. Mm -hmm. And as, as always, the central executive plays an important role. Um, but people are starting to um, tease these things apart mm. and build them into programs. Um, so things are moving. Yeah. Um, something like English, clearly it's, it's a huge difference between uh, learning to spell and uh, uh, to write sentences and um, writing essays about Jane Austen and coming up with things that predict that through working memory is not going to be straightforward. Um, but I think there probably are people who are looking at that. Um, but very much in its infancy. Well, so the answer is yes, it, it is expanding. I don't, I can't keep track of this. There are a thousand titles a year coming out that have working memory in the title. So I only see a few of them. And uh, most of them are not directly related to my model, but uh, other than the, um, the term. And, and broadly speaking, I think the central executive is pretty close to most of them. Well, this is exciting. Like we said, more to learn, the nuances. And I loved how you said in the business of working memory before, <laughs> you know, there's a whole, it is, isn't it though? It is. It is lots, yes. lots yeah. of researchers, lots of publications. And um, we, uh, I'll just read um, some of the questions that we had from listeners. I mean, obviously, as I said, you're very well known in your field and then we have students who study psychology and you're on their exam specification so psychology students and teachers and that's how I first found out about you my best friend uh, Louise um, she's a psychology teacher and then that as she was telling me about memory I said why don't why haven't I heard of this before? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm a teacher, I need to know this. Um, so the question is from uh, Lynn Quinn and she's a psychology teacher, but I do think you've already sort of touched upon this question. Um, but Lynn asked, 
is poor working memory linked to concentration? And if so, how can we recognize it as a working memory issue rather than poor attention? If that makes, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, attention and working memory aren't necessarily different. I think you could argue that the central executive is an attentional system, yeah. um, an attentional control system. And I think all of the models would agree with this. Um, and, and how can you improve it? Um, I'm not sure. It, there's a sense in which uh, people are working on this at the moment. Yeah. It's not, not straightforward. So is it possible then when teachers assuming that a, a student isn't putting in effort, isn't trying, isn't paying attention, that it, it could be a working memory? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I think very often um, the teacher thinks that the student's not paying attention. Um, and it may be that they're, they're bored and looking out of the window. Yeah. Do you remember, I, I had that problem with the teacher. <laughs> no, but that's really important to, to yes. be aware of. Um, and another teacher, um, Michael Boyle, he teaches younger students. And um, he's asked, in terms of the work that you have done and the research, was it focused on adults or older students? Or do you think this is applicable in terms of the limitations of working memory for all ages? So that basically children and adults, we all have these limitations and the same, the, the components of the model and so on. Yes, I think we all have the same structure. Mm -hmm. um, experiments and studies carried out on young children suggest that once they're sort of starting to acquire language and reading and so forth, the systems um, hold pretty well. Um, the constraints differ through age. So as a child, you might have, um, you probably gradually develop the basic attentional system and then um, learn to control it as the brain develops. Um, and what happens as you get older is that you um, acquire more knowledge and more ways of chunking the world uh, and bringing it together, um, rather than necessarily expanding the attentional capacity. And probably by the time you are an adolescent, the attentional capacity is all there. Um, starts to decline at the end of life. Um, probably, fortunately, very, very gradually um, and uh, at different rates for different people. Um, but there's, it's not clear that anyone, well, actually it is clear that different aspects of working memory deteriorate at different rates. So simple phonological verbal memory, repeating back a string of numbers is fairly robust. Um, holding and manipulating information uh, isn't. So if you test someone by having them remember and repeat back a series of letters, um, that's not too much impacted by age. But if you say, okay, I'm going to read out these letters, I want you to repeat them back in alphabetic order, then that really is very taxing and that shows age effects. But during childhood and aging, 
at any one age, there's a very widespread. Um, so a child at seven um, might have, one child might have the uh, capacity of a five-year-old and the other of an eight-year-old. And also from year to year, you get jumps. So a, a child with a five-year-old might jump to seven-year-old, just as you get growth spurts. So these measures are to be um, they're useful, but particularly with development, it's important to realize that there is a wide range and that it's constantly changing. You've inspired me to go out and read more about working memory, because as you know, I've been focusing on retrieval practice, which is obviously pulling it out of long-term memory. And we haven't got time today to, to talk about long-term memory, but in a nutshell, it's obviously very different, isn't it? We've talked about the limitations of working memory and then that transfers to long-term memory. I mean, we don't even, we don't know the limitations of it. It's really powerful, isn't it? Uh, well, yes and no. Oh, right. Or oh, do <laughs> we know the yeah, you're long -term memory. <laughs> I've been working on long-term memory for the last few years. Yeah. Uh, or I'm forgetting. I'm much better at forgetting. Ah, so amnesic patients, for the most part, find it difficult to learn something but they forget at a normal rate. But some, a rare group of patients forget faster. Right. And I got, got involved in trying to measure this and discovering that the theory wasn't very strong in that area. And so I've been working on that for the last four or five years, as well as working memory. Oh, wow. uh, And I'm getting quite excited by it. We should have a, another conversation part okay. two about long-term memory <laughs> okay i'm not sure that my my views would be entirely <laughs> the same as but you're so actually, I, I think probably bob york's and mine would be pretty similar yeah uh, except that the sort of forgetting he focuses on and the, the sort that i'm focusing on at the moment are, are rather different yeah well it's great that you you and um bob york have been in touch and um, oh, we spent a year on sabbatical together in California. Oh, wow. San Diego. And he and I were going to write a book together. Oh. And uh, eventually he, he was too busy. But I have written it with um, one of his ex-students, uh, Michael Anderson. Oh, yes. And, and, and Michael Isaac. So uh, the, what was going to be Badly and Bjork became uh, badly, I think, and Anderson. And the, I think it's the third edition of that has just come out. Oh, I'm going to read 500 that. pages long, so oh. <laughs> it's not really a quick read. But I'd still love to read Badly and Bjork. <laughs> I still think that should happen as well. Yeah. Well, I've, I've been tempted to write something on working memory for teachers. Oh, yeah. But problem is it, it's not clear how I would publish it oh well I can help you there and <laughs> um, my, absolutely well, let's talk about it <laughs> um, I, I've approached I, I've looked at uh, published books and they all tend to be focused on the classroom and you can understand why yeah 
And the sort of book that I'd like to write um, needs someone, a co-author who actually understands the classroom as well. So if you're interested, maybe we should get together. Badly and Jones. <laughs> I would absolutely love that. But my publishers, uh, John Cat, and they are very good, um, you know, supporting um, teachers and researchers. The work of Professor John Sweller has, uh, with cognitive load theories, become really popular and mainstream. And um, and there's been books written on that for teachers. So there's, you know, there's an audience there. There's an interest. There's an enthusiasm. What's the publisher's name? John Cat, but I will send you this information and I will introduce you to my publisher because okay. they've, okay. they've got absolutely a wide range of brilliant books because it, it's an exciting time in education um, in terms of we're trying to be evidence informed and, uh, and learn right. what we can and it's brilliant. Yeah, whenever I talk to teachers, they're enthusiastic. Yeah. Uh, talking, trying to, the, I suppose the, the publishers I tend to interact with are academic publishers like Oxford University Press or uh, Psychology Press. And uh, they have a, an educational section that doesn't seem to incorporate the sort, sorts of things that I, I'd like to write. Right, well, I will be emailing you and my publisher, <laughs> John Cat, because I know yeah. teachers um, would absolutely love this. Uh, teachers of all subjects, of all ages, and they'll take a lot from this conversation that we've had today. I mean, and we've only just sort of touched upon things, but it's already been so helpful, really interesting, really insightful. So thank you for giving us okay. your can, can I? Put in a plug for something that they go for it. Like to read. <laughs> I wrote a book called Working Memories. Yeah. I'll um, share that link. Uh, published by Routledge. And it's it's a, a mix of um, how the working memory model developed, how the concept of memory model developed, and, and it, it's really using my autobiography as, as, as a way of looking at the way in which um, the cognitive revolution in general happened, moving from what was essentially neo-behaviorism to um, cognitive neuropsychology and the like. And um, it won the British Psychological Society Prize. It, it, everybody who's read it is very enthusiastic about it. But books aren't reviewed these days. And um, it wasn't very well publicized. I, I made a deal that they would keep the price below 20 pounds. Uh, and um, they did, but they didn't put anything into um, promoting it. Well, I will promote it widely okay. on social okay. media, put it okay. all over Twitter for our, and Instagram, Facebook for our uh, listeners. I know the book uh, that you're referring to, so I'll share the link um, and I'll, get, I'll give you feedback on that. And any more questions okay. from our listeners after this show, I will. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for your kindness, generosity. Not at all. I really enjoy interacting with people who, who are trying to use the concepts and the the world outside, not just the laboratory. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I don't mind saying, you know, I, when I have questions and I don't understand and it's important to reach out to people, to find out more, to keep learning, just trying to become a better teacher. And um, I definitely feel like your work has helped me significantly with that. Oh, so well, I'm delighted to hear it. Thank oh, you. thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Professor Alan Badley. And that interview was actually uh, pre-recorded a few weeks ago. And since then, we've stayed in touch and we actually contacted my existing publisher, John Cat Publishing. And Alan Badley and I, I can reveal, are writing a book together. The focus is about memory and a guide for teachers. What is it that teachers should know or that will help them in the classroom with their students? So we've been working collaboratively together and this weekend I'm travelling to York where Professor Alan Badley is based and I look forward to meeting him for the very first time and really talking about what we're going to do with this book and getting our ideas down onto paper. We don't have a publication date yet, but we do have our outline. So stay tuned, more information to be revealed. Thank you for listening and I will be back soon with another episode of the Love to Teach podcast. Take care.